Rise and stretch. Thank you for this cup of coffee for I don't know why I need to get up. I'm San Canessa, welcoming you to Survival Kit for the Mental. Squeezing your mind and gut tightly from somewhere in the Southwest. I'm a visual artist, peer wellness specialist, neurodiversity activist, bipolar queer human from El Salvador. Gratitude for my friends and family who continue to help me make sense of this life and the voices in my head that guide me through. Thank you for joining this space dedicated to peer literacy in which we create tools to survive these mental times. May we have the courage to play and doubt everything. It goes, greetings, earthlings, and welcome to Survival Kit for the Mental, a space dedicated to sharing what makes us mental during this time and the tools that we come up with as peers to survive as we continue to create rich content based on peer health and literacy. Today, I have the joy to be accompanied by Dr. Alejandra Herrera, graduated from the University of Vermont with a double major in biology and Latin American studies. She then moved to Costa Rica to pursue her medical degree and is now transitioning into the U.S. medical system to specialize in internal medicine. She is also from El Salvador, and we have been doing lip singing together since 1994. Welcome, Dr. Herrera. <laughs> Oh, thanks for having me. That was quite an intro. <laughs> right? <laughs> Build it up, baby. Oh, man, I'm excited. I'm excited to start this conversation with you. Yes, thank you so much. Um, just to tune the listeners in, we were having a phone conversations a few days ago, and I um, asked Alejandra to kind of share, and I'm asking you again if you could share what your um relationship and definition of mental health what what is it for you especially in a personal and in a medical kind of uh field mm -hmm. yeah well that's qu quite a question because it's been a relationship that has been ever-changing for me it's been quite a journey um because you know uh, living in El Salvador and growing up there until I was 14, it just, it was very, I think we grew up, you know, post-Civil War, El Salvador, there was a collective trauma already felt in our, um, in our nation. And so rooted from that, like, that's where we, that was the environment we were born in, right? And so I feel like, personally speaking, like my mom, you know, she, um, Nobody teaches you how to raise children post-Civil War in El Salvador. But, you know, my, I feel like my mom just tried to ignore it rather than, you know, confront it and guide me through it and do it together. I think she, that, that um, just blatant disregard for what was happening and the lack of guidance really hurt me and, and led to some, some form of trauma. And then, um, but then in addition to that, I, I never really recognized how much that impacted my life. 
And then combined with a couple other effects that happened, um, traumatic effects that happened in my childhood, which at the moment I won't dive into, but let's just say that they, they really marked me, but it was something that I didn't process until way later. Um, mm -hmm. And so really childhood trauma was something that I carried, but you know, we, we're, we're very, um, I feel like as humans and as children, when we're children, we have the amazing plasticity in our brains to protect us and to just sort of have these repressed memories just so we can, you know, not deal with them in those moments and then just be able to, to flourish as adults, hopefully, right? That's, that's the goal in our brain chemistry. Um, and, and that's what happened. So I didn't remember a lot. I just, I just had all these different emotions that at different times would kind of come up um, in my different stages uh, growing up. And so that was really tricky because that's where good parenting and hopefully um, the medical professionals and teachers are your allies, right? And hopefully they can jump in and, and, and throw you a lifeline and identify what's going on, right? And guide you through it and kind of uh, give that helping hand, that kind and, and vigilant helping hand. And, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just kind of here a little bit mind blown because, you know, and, and even going into identity. Right. Like when you say growing up in a country that experience, you know, like children of post-Civil War, and I look at, I, I kind of reflect on my own story and how I, I hadn't even thought about that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not something that I, that I think about, but obviously, you know, it affected me and it's in me and it has, mm -hmm. it has repercussions, you know, whether it was, you know, or my sister being temporarily kidnapped or whatever, right. you know, right. kind of state of fight or flight that we either collectively acknowledged or not, but I'm just here listening to you taking a little breath because I'm like, wow, that is such a real and truthful identity that, that, you know, I'm kind of, uh, that is in all of us. It is. Right. Mm -hmm. And that grew up there during that time. And it's just interesting to see the different ways of assimilation and also based on what happened to us. So for sure. Thank I mean, it's <laughs> something that it's been, I didn't identify it until I started therapy in 2018 here in, in Florida, once I was ready. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really put two and two together. So it's, it's been, it's been a, a while for me to, to get to this point, to identify that, you know, those, those events in my life really marked me. And I guess where I was going with it is, you know, that I really truly felt that the adults in my life now, now in hindsight, right now that I see it as a professional and I've been in therapy, um, I really felt like the adults in my life failed me. Um, they failed to identify and sort of guide me through this trauma. And what I mean by that is, is not only my mom, because on top of all of this, I mean, she has undiagnosed um, personality disorders. It, it, and that's just my professional opinion. Like now that I see it as a doctor, Right. I don't, I don't like um, <laughs> diagnosing people. It's just kind of like one of those things that helps me process 
my own journey yeah, for your mental health. Exactly. So I, I don't yeah. believe in, in placing labels, right. As a mental health professional, you know, identifying someone as diseased. Uh, no, that's, that's not, it's not the, the type of doctor I want to be. And I will always striving to, to be very careful with that, but it is helpful for me to identify certain patterns of behavior just because that's the way I think, you know, and I can, I can see and, and establish my own boundaries now as an adult. Um, but I guess, you know, my, so having my mom go through her depression and her, you know, uh, personality disorder that was not diagnosed, untreated. And then she, she also, you know, was, was going through, um, monetary difficulties at that time. And then um, my dad wasn't there. He just stayed in Mexico and, and didn't really think that it was necessary to show up as a parent. And so that coupled with, you know, the psych, uh, psychiatrists that evaluated me and my teachers that also, you know, saw a different sort of um, change in behavior and also uh, irritability, like just, just all the red flags, you know, like I was a poster child for red flags. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. and, um, and they failed, or they all failed to see it. They, and then, and not to mention my pediatrician. Right. And the reason why I'm focusing on the adults is because that's what they're there for. Right. You as a child, you're supposed to just experience life and start, you know, just, it's just the beginning. And so the adults are really there as, as to, to, to figure stuff out that is a little bit higher than, than your, you know, than your age at that point or, or experience level, I would say. And so, you know, not until I started my own rotations in psychiatry, did I realize that all of the red flags that I was exhibiting just were missed, sorely missed. And not to mention that I was diagnosed with ADHD, which I, I didn't have. And I also was treated for ADHD. I was given Ritalin. So, and at the time. How many years? Oh, I think it was like three years maybe worth of Ritalin. Mm -hmm. and, and every day, except maybe for the weekends. But, um, <laughs> you know, it was just, it was one of those things that I, I never understood why they gave me Ritalin. Because I, I felt like I did fine in school. I could concentrate. I was just bored. Not to mention that, you know, I was going through everything I was going through at the time. And so, you know, that's, that's when I just skipped a beat and I just started, you know, acting out enough that my mom felt the need that I needed to, to move to a completely different environment, which was Vermont. <laughs> and then she shipped me off to, to live with my sister, my 26-year-old sister and her four-year-old son in Vermont. At 14, I was 14. So, you know, and just uh, even like to get to there and kind of connect it to kind of the unit, like a few questions have come up for me because, and I wonder in, if in your healing process this helped because, you know, there is this, of course, really big expectation on adults being capable of handling life and handling having children mm. and also handling being in the eight 
stages of wellness, you know, kind of having a, they're in a state of wellness, mm-hmm. right? And like, you know, you share about your mother and kind of recognize that there was no wellness in that household, yeah. right? I think about my own and think, wow, there was, at the time I was growing up, there was no longer wellness. And it's so interesting because I don't know if this happens to you, but a lot of the times I know my family had problems, but I default into kind of being like, oh, but everyone has problems and, you know, this, this shouldn't have affected me as much. And so I was just curious, kind of like, uh, in your witnessing of children, like how, what is their experience? Like, how do they process like their home not being wellness when they don't know anything else? Well, actually, that's something that I wanted to, I I guess I'll skip ahead to that, because that's something that for me as a professional now is something of great interest. And I, you know, once I do start my specialty, even though I'm not going to be a pediatrician, it's something that I want to always, always um, be aware of and, and, and include it in my practice. And then also, you know, in addition to that, like if I ever um, have the opportunity to, to train other doctors, like I would this would be the first thing that I would kind of flag for them to understand. So to answer your question about how children experience this, first of all, I I mean, I can't speak for all children. I can only speak for for my experience. And and looking back, (laughs) you know, I mean, just the whole entire world that's filled with children, I will be their, their mouthpiece for a second. No, no, I will not. But the point is that we're resilient, right? As human beings, we're resilient. Our brain and the way that it just helps us cope as children in order to have a fighting chance and just repress the memories, right? Um, that's resilience. And most children exhibit quite a bit of it and they don't get enough credit. Usually the adults take the credit because then it's like, oh, well, didn't turn out to be a stripper or a hooker, so good for her, you know? And, and it's like, it's, it's all about me. It's all about me. I did a great job. She's a doctor now. And then it's like, well, hold on a second. No, no, no. <laughs> Not quite, but, um, but the thing is that I, um, not to get too muddled with what I was trying to say, but it's just, you know, one of the pivotal moments in my career and also one of the moments where I realized that I might need to get help is when I read, um, but also I I watched this TED talk first, I should say, um, this TED talk by the pediatrician Nadine Burke Harris, and she talked about something that really marked me, and that's basically adverse childhood experiences, right? And what does that mean? And so what she found out uh, when she read this study by um, Dr. Vince Felitti and Dr. Bob Anda, they conducted the study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, where they asked adults, around 17,000 adults, about their experiences in childhood. And they wanted, the the point of this study was basically to um, figure out what what adverse effects uh, or experiences had a major impact in the adults later in life, right? And how does that negatively impact them later in life? And they found out that, um, and they coined this, this term, ACEs, meaning adverse childhood experiences, to having exposure to physical, emotional, sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, parental mental illness, substance dependence, incarceration, 
parental separation or divorce or even domestic violence, all any experiences of what I just listed that a child can experience, that has a negative impact in their cardiovascular and just it basically it's just setting up them uh, their life as adults to um, have a a decreased life expectancy. If you, if, just to put it in the simplest terms, like they, it, it'll kill you faster if you. If, that's basically one of the biggest conclusions, and that's for me as a professional. I'm like, why aren't we screening this? Why aren't why didn't I learn this right during medical school? How how did I not learn this? How are we not placing more impor- importance on this? Because it'll—it's basically saying we can we can warn children about STDs and we can warn them about smoking, but we can't warn them and we can't screen them for for these adverse experiences, you know. And and so that's that was like the big game changer. So you know, the, as far as like how do children experience all this? I don't know. It's resilience, and then they grow up, and then it kind of manifests itself by decreasing your life expectancy that's so crazy porque you know i learned about aces in my peer wellness mm, good. training nice and it was so funny because they were like you know what there was people there and me myself they were like i don't even want to see my aces because you know i'm just set up to fail. <laughs> same and same then there was there was this, uh, you know, kind of um, reinforcing and kind of uh, really supporting people to also take the resilience mm. test because it shows you your level of yeah. resilience, which is, you know, it's different for everyone. And then you can counterbalance your aces. But it was interesting kind of, you know, like, yeah, what do you do when you have fucking all the yeah. aces? Yeah. Well, and it's I didn't know it wasn't really kind of shown in the medical world, but I guess it's very socio and psychological kind of basis or I, you know what it's I, it at that point it just takes the doctor to just kind of do a little bit more research on their own but I really I really uh-huh. hope that most of my peers and colleagues are gonna be able to apply this and even though they're not pediatricians because it matters you know it's killing people (laughs) it's not it's not as easy identifiable as a you know as a cigarette or alcohol but it it has a huge detriment in our lives and so that's when I felt most identified with my own aces and I'm like oh well crap okay so let me back up and help myself first (laughs) so at this time I think I was about you know 25 years old when I identified them and I first started learning about them. Um, so, you know, that, that really turned it around for me because I was always labeled as a angry, um, person, angry, uh, reactive, irritable, you name it. I mean, it's just, if, if I wasn't well adjusted, um, and, and, and fit the profile of what a, a lady in medicine or just in general should look like, especially for my mother in a Salvadorian culture, you know, it was, is, <laughs> which I didn't fit that mold. I didn't, I was very opinionated and I questioned everything. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I, I had all these labels that were just completely a misrepresentation of who I was and really did affect my identity because I started believing it. 
I started saying to myself, well, I guess I'm always going to be that rude um, and impertinent person, right? And it wasn't that. It's just that I was surrounded by assholes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big difference. (laughs) And And I was just... No, but you know, it's really reinforcing to our identity, whether we're victims, whether we're the angry one, whether we're the sensitive one, you know, it's like, there's all these reinforcing things that surround us. And, and I tried and breaking those voices and breaking those cycles that were in my being, it was uh, quite a feat. And I'm still learning how to do that. Um, in addition to trying to process trauma, right? That's a tall order. And, but I've been trying my best and I started, the very first thing that I did remember that I I did for myself was starting to trust myself and have uh, trust in my decisions in order to protect myself. And that started when I was 14 and I moved to Vermont and I started to feel safe. Just being in Vermont and being able to go out alone without a fear of getting kidnapped or mugged, I think was a good uh, change of pace for me. And um, mm. so I think that's where it started. And I just kind of maintained that inner monologue and trust with myself for, for a while, which came extremely um, handy once I started to process all of this. Um, in therapy here with, I, I call it my therapist, Wonder Woman. She has a, a German last name. And I think it's like, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but in my mind, it reads Wunderman. Uh, and I, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So I changed it to Wonder Woman. Um, so, so with her help, you know, she identified that anger. Cause I felt, I felt that anger for a long time. And, and she's like, well, anger um, is just, you know, a, a tool that children develop to identify fear and instead of fear you get angry and you know that's that's your wall I'm like oh that makes a lot of sense yes I was very very scared growing up yep makes sense and so you know it all just started coming together and I guess one of my favorite tools that I've learned is to really honor my inner child and not just silence my inner child and I never knew that I was doing that I never knew that I just kind of was uncomfortable by the things that would come up and I would just silence, silence the voice instead of diving into it and sort of figuring out what it meant. And um, yeah, that's. What's, what's your relationship with anger now? How do you use anger? How has anger felt in your body after, you know, this kind of, um, passage. You know, it's interesting because now I feel, I feel like I'm a complete, I'm in a different space, especially with my family. Um, they're still them, right? They still do the same type of thing that they used to do when I was a child. And it's hurtful to see that it's still that way. Cause you know, I guess like my inner child never will let go of that nice family picture perfect family that I that I always desired but you know that's nor that's that's just more quiet it's still there but the anger is now replaced by genuine curiosity because now my inner child knows that I'm, I'm safe like I've done the work like 
I, I have those two personas in me, right? The, the doctor side of me and my inner child, <clears throat> excuse me, my inner child. And I communicate and I kind of honor when one wants to come out and take over in that moment. So when my, you know, when my mom says something that just can be triggering, um, or even just being in a space, right? And just smelling something um, that takes you back and it brings up a little anxiety or um, bad memories. In that moment, I'm like, okay, what's this? I give it a voice and I just sit for a second. Even if I'm busy, even if I might be in the middle of a conversation, I, you know, I just sort of take a, a moment. I excuse myself, go to the bathroom and I just kind of feel it out. And different techniques. Sometimes it could just be drinking water. You know, you get in your head and just water just cuts it. Um, for me anyway, it, it, it helps. <clears throat> no, no, and you know, there's a, I, I'm, I'm here kind of thinking about two things. First of all, it's amazing because there's, I think, a very real cultural um, reality and, and belief, which as different to let's say US culture where like I've met a lot more people that are really okay with not talking mm -hmm. to their parents or people that really don't like really cut sure. ties with their parents until sure. maybe they come to a resolution or maybe till they're dead. And you know how in sometimes in Latin American cultures, there's always, maybe it's Catholicism, I don't know, but you have to stay, you know, like you always have to honor your family. Yeah, mm-hmm, yep. <clears throat> and there's, you know, what comes with that, right? And uh, so I was kind of thinking about that when, you know, you were last sharing about how you deal with coming together with your family and also, Curiously, I'm thinking now of you now in this kind of like doctor world, right? And like a medical profession and kind of you're, you're, you're being your own adult. And so, you know, and, and kind of reflecting on, on when you were younger and you were waiting for this adult to kind of show up. And so how does, how does it feel now to embody the adult that you wished your child had and bringing it? And how does the medical profession like um, make that more palpable and real for you? And how does it feel? It does. I mean, it's sense. tricky. It's a tricky question because I think it's, it's, it's never, it's never going to be like, I have arrived right at this status and then it's stagnant. Um, I work at it. I work at it because it's never the same. It's never the same experience. Sometimes you can have an experience with a patient that brings something up and you still have to be professional and you can't be triggered in that moment and succumb to that. Um, so it's constant practice. So since I'm not working at the moment, I challenge myself to practice with my family and to not shy away from them and to, in fact, embrace in a very safe manner because it's it's still like I have to remind myself it's under my control right if I want to call them I I I, I can hang up <laughs> right so, <laughs> so you know just I just I I keep inviting them in my life and I keep going in small doses to learn how to figure that out right and embody the professional side of me but yet 
still embracing my inner child if something comes up, right? And 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 those and honoring that, honoring those experiences and those feelings that can come is something that I don't know. I, I feel like I never really understood how to do that until I just started identifying and practicing it. And so I don't, I don't know. It's just it's um practice makes perfect, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying every day. Mira, and, you know, kind of going back also into working with children for that period of time um, that you were in Florida. And I remember seeing you and you were quite impacted and interested, you know, and you almost uh, decided to go into that field to make Mm -hmm. you consider. Um, can you share with us more about that, that experience? Yeah. I mean, that was right. I guess to preface it, that was right before I started going to therapy. That's one of the moments that I decided that I definitely probably should, should find someone to talk things out. And the reason for it is because, um, I, I, uh, I did a rotation, an observership, um, in the, in the child and the adolescent psychiatric, um, inpatient unit meaning they're there for a while until they 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 uh they can go home and it was for me it was one of those experiences that it was first of all it was very drastic i mean even just to bring costa rica and a little bit of my costa rican experience because i did do um my psych rotation there as well it wasn't with children though it was with adults Mm -hmm. but even then it it's it impacted me how different culturally things are handled um and that's just a whole different conversation just what they choose to value and work on in costa rica is not the same as they do in the united states um and what's the biggest difference just to give you know for me i think from what i observed anyway it's more the the fact that they they continue to see it through a lens of a heteronormative cisgendered person doctor right and that's their lens so when they have these complex beings that don't fit that mold and even if they do if they if it is a cisgendered woman right um it 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 you're still looking at it through an antiquated lens. So something that could be easily fixed by just, you know, education and educating oneself. Um, they, they continue to hammer down old heteronormative traditions. Like, oh, if you're having problems with your husband, then it's probably your fault. Because, you know, you're the woman and you're supposed to be the one dealing with your feelings. Meanwhile, she has postpartum depression. Just to, you know, just to kind of give you that little snippet, it's, it's kind of like that. So yeah. for me, it was like, oh, for real guys, like, let, let's do better. We, we can't, we can't be falling into these old blame games either, especially on a professional level, you know? So obviously in the U S it's a little bit, a little bit more progressive, but I would like it to be more inclusive for, for people that are, that, that don't fit the mold either children specifically that you know they're they're testing boundaries and that's something that i really identified with most of these children that were there and adolescents they all of them knew they had been there probably more than once and they come from 
a range of socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, parents as well. You know, some of them have two parents, some have one, some of them are live with their uh, grandparents. So a different range of experiences and they're there interacting with each other. And I feel like one of the things that I learned is that we stick to scripts. We, we stick to, okay, this is the process of how to do a diagnosis. This is the treatment. And once you're sticking to it and we see some form of progress, whatever that means, um, we send you home. And I'm not going to knock on an entire specialty, right? I'm sure it's very difficult to get to even, because they don't just have one patient, right? They have, they have um, multiple patients at once, and it's incredibly difficult to give individual attention to each one throughout the entire day. But I feel like if we, if the nursing staff, if the doctors themselves start trying alternative ways to not just check boxes, but to truly connect with the patient on a level that we can provide better guidance for them to have it as a tool to, to go out from that, you know, safe space in the hospital and, and be able to, to start learning how to develop that, those triggers or, or not develop, but I mean, um, deal with their triggers or develop a better relationship with themselves and then providing tools for them, not just in that moment, but also just um, the, the, the outpatient resources that they have, whether it's, you know, um, uh, a therapist or even like um, a question therapy, right? Something as, as fancy as that sometimes you know, we shouldn't look at the outdoors and nature as, oh, that's, that's only for people who have a lot of resources. That's, that's beyond the state's um, ability to, to provide that for the patient. That to me is ridiculous, right? So <laughs> I, it is, it's, it's so like, real. You, such a luxury to be, you know, kind of be in nature, exactly. especially in the United and States. So that's, that's, that's kind of where I was most surprised because I feel like there's a lot that we could do better. A lot that we can do better on how to connect with kids, on how to provide them with better resources and better outlets and not just do the, the fuddy-duddy checklist and you know give them um, some prescription if they need it. I'm not going to knock on medicine. It works. I mean, if you need it and you have you know a chemical imbalance, it's okay, but it always needs to be partnered with with alternative sources of, of, or outlets, I would say, you know, the main one being nature. No, totally. And, you know, in the peer wellness, so, and like the peer support specialist or peer, peer wellness specialist role, it's kind of this movement. I mean, it started in the eighties, but it really kind of is building force because there's a lot around like literacy you know, which a big component of it is like education that is really coming through with people with same lived experience because it, for real, like, you know, we need multidimensional yes. teams. Like when you have a really good, I was talking a uh, previous interview with this, uh, this 
um, guy in Australia and, you know, he was commenting on his multidisciplinary and multidimensional team. And I was like, that is such but a it luxury, shouldn't. right? Cause but it shouldn't. I know Australia has a lot of, Australia has a lot of problems, but I think in their medical system, at least if you're living in Melbourne, I've, I've met a few people that I'm, that have shared their mm. stories and I'm kind of impressed, you know, yep. it's like Canada or whatever. And just so, yeah, kind of the shocker, you know, that to walk into these spaces and sometimes you don't even know that much, but you just know that something is missing or off or again, just a check, mm -hmm. you know, going down mm -hmm. that checklist, which, you know, if we go back mm -hmm. to speaking about aces, like if you have, mm -hmm. you know, seven of, let's say seven aces, the chances are is that you're going to end up there repetitively throughout right. your entire teenage life you know until they don't want to take you anymore because you've been in there for too long damn um yeah it's well right. no it's it's just it's hard to take in because it, it shouldn't be that way right the obvious the, the the obvious um uh course of action there is to to drastically change that right so so that's not children aren't set up to fail in that respect um Nobody is left mm -hmm. like you're, you're never, I guess, to use a crude word, you're never that fucked up to get help. There's always, you're, you're always, always, right. there's always room for you. There's, you, you choose yourself and save yourself and there will be help along the way. That's, that's the way that I choose to see life. And I, I really, truly feel that that's for anybody that is feeling lost or just like, mis mislabeled or even misunderstood that's you come first for yourself and there's always room for you and you just gotta you just gotta you know work work at it for yourself first and and if and it's if it's too hard at first I would hope that our medical system is there to help right not just to put a label on you and and also find different resources that yeah. work for you. I mean, I remember going into when I was little, when I, I mentioned I, I um, went to a psychiatrist when I was little, I think I was like nine and or even even younger because I went a couple times and I was terrified of this guy. I still remember like going in. He had his clipboard. He was talking to me in this really weird, eerie, creepy voice. And there were toys surrounding me, but for some reason, the, 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 the toys felt stale. I felt like I, I didn't even want to touch them because they just felt like they were there for alternative reasons. And even as a little girl, I, I intuitively felt this and I just sat there fearful of what was happening in the conversation that I had to have this with, with this guy. I know that if someone would have, you know, taken me on a walk and shown me I don't know, freaking butterfly, and then asked me what was going on. Probably, I would have opened up a little bit more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah. it's just, I just, I. That's just one of those things that really made me and catapult me into the decision of of doing um, something different with with my profession, right? Have a different angle, but that's me. That's just me. It's not. It's not a not the whole medical system, which is kind of what I'm advocating here for. <laughs> um, but I guess baby steps, right? You're the change. You're the first change that you want to see out there.
No, of course. And I think then you actually, you know, take, it's a way to discern, you know, kind of what works for you as well and what doesn't, because I think as also any professional, you have to take care of your own mental health, you know, and you have to know the, the things that you're capable of taking on and holding space for and the things that you're mm-hmm. just like, I mm-hmm. don't think so. Yeah. So I have a, I have a quick mm-hmm. question for you, my dear. How has mm-hmm. dance mm-hmm. and movement helped you <laughs> to connect in your, with your being, your own psychosomatic self, if you want to place it like that? <laughs> boom, boom, turning the <laughs> car around. And you know, I love it. I love it. Thank you for the question. Well, first of all, I just want to come out because I've hardly moved the last okay yeah maybe six months um I feel like yeah something just kind of happened where my my movement practice really um vanished into thin air but so that's okay and I'm not ashamed of that but I just wanted to say that very clearly and I think in the past, or let me just say two days ago, I had a little session in which I danced and I remembered like mm. the joy of being alive. You know, I, I'm a person that I'm always kind I walk with this kind of bitter resentment. I feel that. Um, <laughs> and when I, in my <laughs> movement practices have always mm-hmm. made me kind of giggle at that. And understand, like, just what if, you know, and, and not even understand, but just redirect my focus into other ways of existing and living and, and recognizing as, you know, as I continue to exist. Um, I think another thing that the movement arts have given me is um, it's it's been really mm-hmm. recalibrating, even like videos that I've posted on Instagram, you know, like, and they're really good at promoting my artwork. So aside of that, um, a reason why I do it is because taking sometimes three minutes from your day and just placing yourself through the vehicle of your body in a completely Mm -hmm. different state, it's, it's, it's a really big tool you know, and, 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 and it's really a, it's really a practice. And I guess that's why I started by saying that I haven't, because I've found these last six months, a lot of resistance. Maybe it's because it's winter um, and it's cold out. And I've just kind of been hibernating a little bit more and just mm-hmm. sitting down a little bit more than I used to. But I even find it interesting like, wow, I'm not really moving my body. What, what is that about? Um, but I know it's a, just a time where I, I won't be in such deep communion, but it's just that also what I love about it is mm-hmm. you don't need anyone. You don't need to go anywhere. At any time. Yep. You have it at any time. So I love that. Well, especially, yeah, I love that. The reason why I even decided to ask you that one Mm -hmm. question was because you inspired me to do that in my daily practice. And it's not like I do 
sessions. I just do little outbursts, which I love the fact that you connected that um, with your with your own discipline of movement. Um, because for me, I have to remind myself to have fun. Uh, I because of I had to become my own parent. I tend to be very strict with my own time and energy and. I always remind myself that I just need to tap into that and dance is one of those. So I always cycle back to our beautiful experience that we had together, that starry New Year's Eve, um, where we danced the night away and yes. just flowed all of us together. And I, I, that really, I, I had never done anything like that before. And it's been one of the most magical experiences um that that I shared with you and my husband that was really nice so thank you for that no he was not but we grouped it together (laughs) I love it no it's sweet that was one of that was a really wholesome new year's and I haven't had many wholesome new year's and even our dear Kelly Montes was in town and uh I remember, um, but I do also remember and have to say this because Dr. Herrera is a very skillful <laughs> tap dancer. So she serves the tap and you know, brings in her own rhythms to the dance floor when we hold movement <laughs> sessions. It's my way of pounding the earth, right? <laughs> yeah baby that ritual communion it's a reverence indeed it is (laughs) oh I miss laughing with you I enjoy this enjoyed it so much Mm -hmm. no thank you so much for tuning in and tuning out with us on this Monday fun day um and I look forward to to having more conversations like this with you. I love you, bud. 